perpetual traveler through the Bible. Please join me for the next part of my journey through the Scriptures. Stay as long as you like and let us together discover a bit more about the Bible. Many believers like to visualize Christ as a very gentle, meek, lowly Savior, regarding Him rather as the suffering Messiah of the cross or the baby in a crib. They never think of Him as the coming judge. We should not be surprised that He will come as a judge, but we should marvel that He ever came as Savior to sinful man. In the last podcast, I pointed out a remarkable vision that the prophet Isaiah had of the warrior Messiah in Isaiah chapter 63. This passage is a dialogue between the prophet Isaiah and the Messiah. Isaiah is shown the vision of the second coming of Christ. He is standing in Jerusalem and is looking south towards Edom. He sees the approach of a great warrior with crimson stained garments and this conversation takes place. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bosra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. This passage is parallel to the one in Revelation 19 verses 13, which describes the second coming of Christ as the rider on the white horse. It describes the rider's robe as being dipped in blood. This passage from Isaiah 63 shows us that the blood was not his own blood, shed for the redemption of the sinners on the cross, but it was the blood of God's vengeance, the blood of the wicked. Revelation 19 and 20 tells us clearly that God is coming in judgment. Jesus Christ is the judge. The awful climax of God's judgment in Revelation 19 will be the battle of Armageddon. This battle gets its name from Revelation 16 verses 14 to 16 that says, For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. It might be better to speak of the campaign of Armageddon, since it is clear from other scriptures that it will not be a single battle but a series of events that all nations of the world will be drawn in as participants. Armageddon is the name in Hebrew Harmageddon, meaning the mountain or hill of Megiddo. Megiddo being a hill town situated in the low hills overlooking this great plain in north-central Palestine. The place is also called by its Greek name Estrelon, and its Hebrew name, Jezreel. It is a natural battlefield, and a number of bloody battles have been fought here. Throughout history, armies have fought countless battles in that region. The Egyptians, Assyrians, Greeks, Romans and Crusaders have all fought battles in Megiddo, as well as the armies of Napoleon. Megiddo was also the site of battles during World War I and the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. The plain of Megiddo, or Armageddon, was famous for two great victories in Israel's history. Firstly, Barak's victory over the Canaanites that is recorded in Judges 4 verses 15, and secondly, Gideon's victory over the Midianites, which appears in Judges 7. Armageddon was also the site of two great tragedies, the death of Saul and his sons in 1 Samuel 31 verses 8, 
and the death of King Josiah in 2 Kings 23 verses 29 to 30. Revelation 19 verses 17 to 18 says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. The Lord Jesus' appearance on earth will bring about a great slaughter of his enemies. This passage is just another description of the great campaign that is called the Battle of Armageddon. We have already seen a glimpse of that in chapter 9 of Revelation, where 200 million soldiers from all the armies of the earth will gather in the land of Palestine. Here is the description of that battle in Ezekiel 39 verses 1 to 4. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshesh and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward, and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north, and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand, and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes, and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Later on in verse 17 in that same chapter of Ezekiel comes a similar invitation to the feast for the birds of the air that we saw paralleled in Revelation 19 verses 17 to 18. Thus says the Lord God, Speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. You shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled, and drink blood till you are drunk, at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my tables with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. This describes the judgment of God against the nations. Basically, in this battle, the king of the north, which some Bible scholars think refers to the area of modern-day Russia, comes down into the land of Israel and is met by the king of the south, that is, the armies coming from modern-day Egypt coming against Israel. They will be joined by the armies of the east that crossed over the Euphrates River in Revelation 16 verses 12. The conflict is ended only by the sudden destruction which comes from the appearance of Jesus Christ himself. And I saw the beast and all the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two are thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulphur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. When Jesus reveals himself, every eye will see him, and these leaders of the nations will actually attempt to attack the Lord himself. Verse 19 says, They gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. This is the day that was spoken of by the psalmist in Psalm 2, where there is a prophecy of this very event. Psalm 2 verses 1 to 3 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, and cast away their cords from us. They will come, probably armed to the teeth with nuclear and all kinds of exotic weapons, ready to destroy the Son of God when he comes. But in spite of all their efforts, in spite of all their attempts to gain victory, they will be utterly defeated. The beast, that is the Antichrist, and the false prophet will be immediately captured and be cast into the lake of fire, which in chapters 21 and 22 is called the second death. The second death is a death in that it is a separation from God, the giver of life. It is called the second death because it follows physical death. It is a terrible symbol of eternal torment and fire and an inner torment that burns on and on and never ends. The rest of the Antichrist army, we are told, are killed by the word of God, not by a physical weapon, but by a single spoken word. In John 18 verses 2 to 6, in John 18 verses 2 to 6, when our Lord was in the garden of Gethsemane, as the soldiers approached him to arrest him, he asked them, "Whom do you seek?" They said, "Jesus of Nazareth." The Lord Jesus answered and said, "I am he." Jesus literally said, "I am" or Jehovah. The account says that when he said, "I am" or Jehovah, that they all fell backwards to the ground at that word. That is the power of the word. Jesus could have walked out of the garden a free man had he chosen to do so, but instead he gave himself willingly into their hands. He sacrificed himself. However, here in Revelation 19, when the Lord Jesus comes again, one word from his lips will kill all the enemies of God. It is important that I clarify in your minds exactly what is going on here. This is not the final judgment of the ungodly. This is simply their execution. Their final judgment does not come until chapter 20 and verse 11 of Revelation, after the thousand-year kingdom, at an event called the Great White Throne Judgment. In a sense, they are like criminals who have been incarcerated in hell. They are sent there by means of their physical deaths, and they are held captive in hell for a thousand years until they can be resurrected and brought into the Great White Throne Judgment for their formal sentencing. They are merely executed here in Revelation 19. They will be judged in a thousand years, and I will speak more about that when we eventually get into chapter 20. So this is not the final judgment. This is the execution of the ungodly sinners of the world who sided with Satan during the time of the tribulation, who have sided with the Antichrist, taking his mark and worshipping him. These are the people who have continually and willfully rejected the gospel. God comes down and kills them all. These are the multitudes spoken of in Joel 3 who are in the valley of decision. They are not there to make a decision. They are there to hear the decision that God has made. The judge has decided and this is their execution day. Some of you might want to point out that God's ruthless destruction of the armies of mankind that come against him seems inconsistent with his compassion. Perhaps there is a question in your heart, how can a God of love do such a thing? Such a question forgets that God is, at one and at the same time, a God of love and a holy God of justice. To ask the question is to ignore the devastating consequences of sin. Several times in the book of Revelation, God has offered them forgiveness if they were to repent. Yet they, again and again, refuse God's offer and prefer to worship the very demons who hated them. These people prefer the delusion to the truth. It is a holy God who must deal with sin in order to bring the perfect reality 
for which he had created humankind in the first place. We have not yet seen the fate of the great dragon Satan. The chapter ends right here. In the following chapter we will see Satan bound and the millennial kingdom set up, but we will cover that in the following podcast. We could just stop here. We have, after all, reached the end of the chapter, but I wanted to remind you of something very important at this point. We dealt with it in some detail at the end of episode 35 of the Journey Through the Scriptures podcast. The essential purpose of prophecy is to testify about Jesus. He is the central figure of all life. We hear of many religious ideas being spread abroad today, from Eastern religions to New Age philosophy to the cults and atheistic science. Each one claims to explain to us how the universe is set up, how life works, and what to do in order to relate to whatever God there may be. The test of all such faiths, including science, which is a faith of sorts, is answering the question we all have to answer. What have you done with Jesus? What place in your worldview is there for Jesus? He did exist. There are historical and non-biblical records of his life. Jesus came, he lived, and he taught. He died, and he rose again. All of this has been established with irrefutable evidence. It is a fact. Therefore, any faith that offers to help man must deal with that fact. How does Jesus fit into your scheme? This is the question the Bible confronts us with. Jesus is the great issue of life. All life finds meaning only in Him. And all hope for this broken world flows from the fact of His coming again into the world. This is David Wiles, your fellow traveler in Christ, and this has been the Journey Through the Scriptures podcast, episode 54.